Um, <clears throat> years ago, I studied a chapter out of a book entitled The Message of Acts. It's a book that probably wouldn't be the most enjoyable book for most people to read because it's just a whole bunch of stuff. And what I did is I dug out sermons out of this past, this uh, one chapter. It's called The Holy Community. I do want to say to you, it can't, this, this information comes from Dennis Johnson. Um, I dug it out of his chap, this chapter. I think I dug six sermons out of this chapter. He didn't mean for it to be six sermons, but I think I dug information out of it. So I'm going to tell you where it comes from. Uh, this, I'm not making this up on my own, so just so that you know, these points come from him. I'm going to give credit where credit's due, but I, I love this material, and I think it fits what we do on this uh, Sunday, the third Sunday of the month, this time when, you know, maybe some of the folks who would normally come at night, they might miss a sermon that's in uh, our first Samuel st studies. So this is going to be hopefully something we can do on this Sunday. So the next Sunday of the third Sunday of the month, we'll do another installment of this holy community. And so the question that I'm going to begin with is this, what is your mental picture of heaven? What is your mental picture of paradise? Is your mental picture of heaven a city or a country? Is your mental picture of heaven a people or a pasture? <laughs> is your mental picture of heaven rows of houses, apartment complexes, people walking on, I love this, people walking on driveways and people uh, parking on, uh, what, let me make sure I get this right. People parking on driveways and driving on parkways. That's what, we, you know, we, we, drive, we drive on parkways and we park on driveways. I don't get that. Maybe it should be the other way. Do we think of heaven as schools, parks, neighborhoods, traffic? Or do we think of heaven as fields of corn, wheat, almond trees, cherries, olives, blueberries, Strawberries, if you go to California where I lived, you could walk around down the road and you could see every one of those things all around you. Open places or cities? What do you think of when it comes to thinking of heaven? Now, when it comes to the city, many of us do not necessarily call the city a paradise, but nevertheless, most people who live in the world live in the city. And Johnson says this, most people, the majority of the people in the world live in the city by choice, and by necessity, by choice, by choice. Lori and I went to New York City back in January of 2016, right after Justly got married. And, um, of course, there's an obvious difference in the New York City today than there was back then due to bad policies and defunding the police and sort, sort of things like that. But a lot of people by choice live in cities because basically they're wonderlands of architecture. They're wonderlands of amusements and schools and neighborhoods and colleges and Rice University and all the universities and all the things. There's coffee shops everywhere. You can go anywhere in New York City. You don't have to have a car. You, it used to be more safe to, to ride the subway. You can go downstairs. You can go across the street and buy all your groceries right across the street. Right across the other side of the street, you can go and get all your drugs. And right across the next street, you can go and eat at almost any place you want. So many people by choice choose the city, also by necessity. 
people live in the city because there's a lot of business going on in the city. If you walked across the street from the Hampton Hotel that we were staying in, you, you look across the street and there's 30 young men who look like Andrew. And they all are on bikes. It's 27 degrees and they're all loaded up full of food and they're going out into all the different hotels and all the different businesses to drop off all the food. And then they go back and do it all over again. And they do it all day long. Lots of need for employees. So it's a place where a lot of employment takes place. So this is what's going on in the city. Now, um, it was safe in 2016 because there was a guy named Rudy Giuliani that came along and cleaned up the city, and there were policemen everywhere, blue blue letters on white cars, and all these men, and some of them, I, I mean, I was like going, okay, man, I feel really safe. I could see those four guys carrying assault rifles down the street. I felt real safe. I think I felt safe. It's a wonderful place as long as people, as long as people take care, take initiative to keep those places safe. If they do not keep those places safe and take initiative and spend money to keep those places safe, the once beautiful buildings and hotels and stores become abandoned buildings and hotels and stores. The city, for it to be a good place to live, has to have a facelift from time to time so that people will want to live there and shop there and vacation there and want to come and be there. Which one did you choose? Do you choose a country or do you choose the city? Do you choose civilization or do you choose the pasture? Which one do you choose? Now, it's a common thing in the United States when people moved into to the eastern part of the United States. What was that common phrase that everybody says? Go west, young man. <laughs> Go to the solitary place, young man. But what does God's word say? This is the first point. God's word teaches us that heaven is the city. God's word teaches us that God is a city dweller. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Listen to what God's word says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw... The holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. So God is a city dweller. God says through John, we're told that he sees a vision God dwells in the holy city. It's a city called the New Jerusalem. It's a city prepared as a bride to meet her husband. God is there with his people. Revelation 22, 1 and 2 says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here's God dwelling in a city. And this city is Eden-like in its character. God is on the throne. And the Lamb of God is there with him. And out from underneath the throne is this, this river clear, clear as crystal. Who is that river? Jesus is the river of life, we're told. And on either side of the river... 
There's the tree of life. And this tree of life, it bears 12 different kinds of fruit every month. That's abundant life. Don't, aren't we told that everlasting life is abundant life? Well, that is a picture of it. And our goal as God's people are to make a pilgrimage to this holy city like our father Abraham who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees to the land flowing with milk and honey. God called him and gave him all those promises. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. By faith Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city whose built, whose has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. His pilgrimage is our pilgrimage. And you and I are to look for this city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 12.22 tells us that Abraham was sojourning toward, and this is what John speaks of, what he saw, we're, we're called to the heavenly city, the city of the living God. So we have a portrait here of God as a city dweller. He loves crowded cities where he can be with his people and we can be with each other. Now, let me, let me give you one more passage. In John 14, 2 and 3, everybody loves John 14, 1, 2 and 3. I think I told you all a few weeks ago that if you go to John 14 in any normal person's Bible, there will be more uh, finger oil and more tears on John 14, 1 through 3 because it talks about troubles right before Christ goes to the cross. In verse 2, he says this, my father's house, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Some translations say many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here we have a portrait of many dwelling places. Now, one of the things that's really interesting as we think about that statement is in the ancient times, if let's just, you know, somebody has a house and they have a son and the son's going to get married. And so the son, he's, he's getting ready to get married. And you know what the dad used to do? The dad used to build a resident onto the house. The house would grow as the sons or the daughters would get married. The son would have a house. The dad would build a house for his son, his new wife. And so the house continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's all about people being together. Uh, so heaven, if you will, is a place where people are getting together. This is one of the things we need to be so aware of in Zoom problems, situations. <laughs> okay, I love Zoom, but folks, we need to get away from Zoom if we can. If we can. I love Zoom and I love all the, the easiness of it. But if we can be together, because heaven's a city of people together. Around God and the Lamb and the river. It's a place of safety and peace and joy. And, you know, as we do this, as we do these Bible studies, you know, on our Saturdays we're doing our Bible studies. Um, it's a place where we feel free to talk to each other. And we know that we're not going to get maybe our heads bit off, you know. Um, so it's wonderful. And we're getting ready for heaven. Well, what does God's Word say about the wilderness? What does God's Word teach about the wilderness? I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself here. Instead of just give you explanation, I'm going to let the Bible do the, the explaining here. 
God's word teaches us that the wilderness is. I'm going to fill it in. Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of a good Samaritan. Good Samaritan is a man who comes upon another man who sees a person beaten. He's left for dead. He's stripped. He's robbed. This man left Jerusalem on his way to Jericho, 17 miles, and he has to go through the wilderness. <laughs> so the wilderness is a place where you're opened up to brigands and robbers and thieves. The wilderness separates us from protection. Psalm 63, the psalmist says this, he says, My soul is like a dry and weary land where there's no water. So the, weir the, the wilderness is a place separated from protection and from life-giving water. Psalm 107 verse 4 tells us that people were wandering through a desert wasteland, finding no city, finding no place to settle, finding no place to call home, no social order, just wandering around. We're separated, separated from people. It's uninhabited. There's no fellowship. In Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4 verse 1, we see Jesus' temptation in the in the wilderness, in the wilderness. And in Mark, if you remember Mark, Mark's the short one. Mark's the short gospel. And in Mark chapter 1, it's, uh, Mark only says that Jesus is in the wilderness for his temptation. And this is what it says. He's with the wild animals. And then the wildest of all the animals comes on the scene. The devil who's the roaring lion. The wilderness is separated from safety. And the wilderness opens us up to temptation when we're away from community. Aren't we more easily tempted when we're not with, with a community of Christians? I want you to consider Luke, Leviticus 16, 20 and 20 through 22. On the Day of Atonement, I've, I think I've told you this before, but you know there's the slain goat on the Day of Atonement and there's the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Listen really carefully. The slain goat is the goat where the business of God has taken place. The slain goat is the goat that's put to death. That's where the sins are punished on an innocent animal, the slain goat. Then there's the scapegoat. Remember, we talked about visual aids, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. Those are visual aids to helping us to understand the cross. Well, here's a scapegoat. God is really into visual aids. And so here's Aaron. He confesses all the sins on the scapegoat's head. The scapegoat is then given to a man set aside just for this purpose. He leads the scapegoat where? Out into the wilderness. The sin, this is a portrait. What happens on the slain goat, to make sure everybody understands the sins are taken away and forgiven, those sins are placed on the scapegoat so that everybody sees them going away, banished away from the community. Hebrews 13, 12 says this, The Lamb of God took upon Himself your sins, and He suffered outside the city gate. To make you holy through his blood. Jesus said outside the gate of the city. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? So we can see. That as we look at that one passage. That the wilderness is a place of separation from God's presence. It's to be cut off from God's presence. So think about the things we've said. Let me just give you a quick rehash. Separated from protection. Opened up to wild animals. Opened up to Satan, the wildest of animals. Opened up to danger from thieves and danger from uh, lack of fellowship. One of the things I say to 
every time I do a wedding. What do you say? Y'all, y'all know this little deal? When two people come together and one of them's sad, the other one can help them not be so sad. We calling that having this, it's the, the sadness is halved. And then when somebody's joyful, they have the other person to join in with them and the, ha- the joy is multiplied times two. Well, you don't have that when you're in the wilderness. And bottom line, bottom line, the wilderness represents being separated from God, His presence. Johnson said the wilderness is a picture of hell. The wilderness is a picture of hell. Why does God exalt the city over the wilderness? Well, He exalts the city over the wilderness to teach us His design for our lives. His design for our lives is that we live together. His design for our lives is that we live together before Him and with God. Go back to the Garden of Eden. There's Adam and Eve, and they're to live together, and they're to love together, and they're to rule together, and they're to be fruitful together, and they're to be in the garden before God and worship God together. The church is to be a place in this world where we have a foretaste of heavenly glory, a place where we're together and fellowshipping in community. But to be honest, when you put a whole bunch of sinners in the same place, what happens? Now, they're all saved by grace, but what happens when we get a whole bunch of us together? (laughs) There's going to be some disagreements. There's going to be hurt feelings sometimes. There's going to be maybe some explosive language sometimes. Sometimes things are not as smooth as we would like. So this results in the idea that maybe we could do without the church. (laughs) I mean, have you not been tempted to do without the church? Everybody is. Everybody. I mean, we're tempted to go apart and maybe pursue holiness in a monastery. Right? That's what some people do. Live the life of a hermit. Hey, you know what? I can have my life with God, and while I'm having my life with God out there in my solitary place, and everything's great. Don't let me be bothered with any of these folks. And people will argue all day long, I can be separated from the messiness of church life with all those flawed sinners, and I can get along just fine, me and my God. You see, it's one thing to sing, I love thy church, O God, and it's another thing to enjoy to talk to that man who's on the front row who smells a little different and his eyebrows aren't trimmed like mine. Right? Right? It's one thing to, th- to sing, He wills us be a family, diverse yet truly one, and yet there's that family over there that just needs so much work compared to me and my family, you know? But what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16? He says that Christ is the head of the church. He says that you and I are the members or the body of the church. There's hands in this building. There's feet in this building. There's eyes in this building. There's ears in this building. And we all need each other to function and mature in the body of Christ. This is, I think this just goes against the grain of what maybe we grew up with. I think, (laughs) if I could just go get my Bible out and read it, and I can just go get my quiet time done and, and, and study commentaries and, and do my prayer time and got all my spiritual things all in a row and I get up and I go do my business 
and I'm going to grow. But here's what we need to think about. I've spent time, <laughs> I've spent time working on being like what it means to be patient and to be long-suffering. I've really spent time meditating on it, and I've written a whole bunch of pages on it. And then I get up and I walk over to my wife, and the first thing I'm not is patient. And I need to learn to be patient. I thought, I, but see, I thought I was getting it right here. But see, it's, I'm not saying, guys, not to read your Bible and pray and study by yourself. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that this is where it's really happening in community. Where it's really happening is sitting down at a table with a bunch of guys or sitting down in a room like this and sharpening all of us, sharpening each other as we're together. Ooh, it, it really takes, uh, it works on us. You know, I used to think I was holy till I had children. <laughs> then I found out that I'm not real patient with my kids sometimes. So Johnson points out that the summaries of church life in the book of Acts gives us a, a glimpse of what fellowship in community looks like, shows us the norm. And I want to read these summaries to you. I'll just read a couple. But as you read, make no mistake, if you read the book of Acts, one of the things my Bible reading program has done for me for five years, it makes me read the book of Acts every month. And I did that for five or six years, so I don't know how many times I read the book of Acts. But um, it shows us what it looks like, community looks like. Have any of you watched All Creatures Great and Small? You remember what the veterinarian says to the young veterinarian when he starts working for him? He says, he says it's not the animals that are the problem. It's the people who own the animals that we have our problems with. In Acts chapter 5, deception starts creeping into the church. There's Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 6, there's Greek-speaking Jews who complain against Hebrew-speaking Jews that their widows are being overlooked and they have to solve that problem. So when you read the book of Acts, make no mistake, there are issues that are going to have to be handled. Conflicts have to be resolved. But over, overall, if you look in and read the book of Acts, you're going to find the Spirit of God is working in the people. There are people who confess their faith in Jesus Christ. There are people who are living together in community and they're fearing the Lord. So as we read the book of Acts, we see this pattern laid out in front of us. Now, as I read these to you, remember, the apostles are still present. They're still doing extraordinary things. There's going to be miracles and there's going to be healings. These guys are going to cease to, uh, they're going to die off, and they'll hand the baton of gospel ministry, apostolic ministry, over to ordinary ministers like Timothy and Titus and Pastor Sumter. As we move in, move from the, the book of Acts and into the letters they wrote, they both correspond really well. The life that we see in the churches in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae, they're very much like the church in Acts. Let me read to you a couple of these, Acts 2, 42 through 47. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness 
and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4, 32 through 35. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and mind and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each one as any had a need. We could go and read Acts 5, 12 through 16 and see very much the same thing. But did you hear the words, what was going on continually? Like I said, the apostles are going to play out. They're going to cease. But did you hear the things that are happening continuously? Apostles' doctrine continuously being devoted themselves to that. They were continuing to devote themselves to fellowship. They were continuing to devote themselves to the breaking of the bread, which I think is a, is a statement about taking the sacrament. And they were continually devoting themselves to uh, the prayers, the prayers. Those four things make up or sum up the life of the church. And those four things should sum up the life of Good Shepherd OPC. What we are going to do, I hope, as we move through our uh, third Sunday of the month afternoon service is look at the last three of those. Let's look at the fellowship. Let's look at breaking of the bread and the prayers because they speak of our devotion to one another. Every morning and every evening, most of the time, we're talking about the apostles' doctrine. We may get to that in a separate time in the future, but let's look at those last three, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers because these things speak of how we ought to continue to do business together in the life of our congregation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to worship you on this, this day. We thank you for this study to see that you love the city and that you want us not to live apart, for there's danger when we're just always separating ourselves from others. But there's great joy in being with you and with your people. Lord, sometimes it really, that might just really eat us out to think that we need to live in an apartment complex. <laughs> but that's what heaven's going to be like. All together, all one, all praising you, all near, enjoying your presence and enjoying each other. Could we grow in our desire for that? Would you help us as we continue to work together towards devoting ourselves to your word and fellowship, to your word and breaking bread together and to your word and praying together. Strengthen us to see this as our vision and our understanding of how we should live life in this church, and we will praise you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.